Happy uh, President's Day, or more accurately, uh, happy George Washington's birthday. That's the actual name of the federal holiday. Lots of young people are joining the ranks of the traditional Latin mass, not only in the United States, but around the world. Many of them, many of us, have been called uh, false nostalgics uh, because we have a nostalgia for something that we weren't even alive for, don't remember. Our guest today is David DeShiel. He's the editor of a book by Tan. Here it is. It's called Ever Ancient, Ever New. Welcome to the program. First time having you on, David. Thanks for joining. Well, yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so this short little little book, I read it. Um, I, I read it over the weekend and and finished it this morning. It is a collection of essays from various people who have opinions about the traditional Latin Mass and their experiences in becoming "quote unquote" trad pilled. You know, I think your experience, as you as you wrote in the book, "Ever Ancient, Ever New," um, it's a tan book. And by the way, you can get a you can get a discount code, I think, with RTF ten. Um, and I'll put that in the banner. Um, but your experience was, I think, pretty unique because you were a charismatic Catholic from Stupidville, uh, Stupidville, apologize, uh, you know, and, and a theology of the body, John Paul II guy, like the least likely person to, right, uh, to darken the doorway of a Latin mass. Tell us about your experience. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I, um, I have always been Catholic. My mother's Catholic church, the church. My father is kind of, we'll say friendly to the faith, but he himself is something like agnostic. Um, and so, you know, we grew up going to mass, but it was, it wasn't great. It wasn't terrible, but it was pretty hokey. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the first pastor we had back at home in Baltimore, Maryland, he, um, he did the sort of thing where he would have the extraordinary ministers of communion around the altar. They would all hold hands before the consecration um, you know, the gather him all that sort of thing. So it wasn't the best experience. And the catechesis was all right. You know, I kind of got the basics. I got, you know, who Jesus was, what he did, but really I didn't get much else besides the gospels, but it was enough. Um, you know, for some reason, I guess with my, with my own temperament, you know, being of a more religious bent, it was enough to get me there. It was enough to keep me there. And so eventually I wanted to go into theology of some sort, which is what I got my degree in at Franciscan University. Originally, I'd wanted to be a youth minister, ended up being a liturgist. So I went to Franciscan University and realized that I had really no knowledge of the faith. Um, you know, I had enough to pray every morning and every night, but that was pretty much it. And so I started dabbling in the the charismatic movement just a little bit. So I was learning about the faith. I picked up some Aquinas, had no idea about scholasticism, philosophy, any of that. But it was interesting enough for me to keep going and realize there's something there. I was reading that. I was learning about the faith. And I was trying out some things like praise and worship. And I went to a Life in the Spirit seminar where you learn about gifts, extraordinary gifts, like speaking in tongues and that sort of thing. Yeah. And it was interesting to me. I think I, I got kind of a twofold impression. One was that, well, you know, there are a lot of people here who are doing this sort of thing who are kind of riding emotional highs, it seems, you know, looking for the next palpable experience of God. And then on the other hand, there are people for whom this is pretty genuine. You know, these seem these all seem like men and women of faith. But for me, it just it wasn't really working as far as prayer. You know, it didn't feel like I was able to pray to the Lord. I was able to hear him and speak to him super well through this charismatic mode of praise and worship, as they say. Um, And so eventually I got in with the liturgy committee at Franciscan University. 
I started ushering. I started being a lector, extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. I was the one who coordinated a lot of those different ministries or apostolates, I should say. I was helping out during the summer conferences. They have five youth and five adult conferences at Franciscan. And it's a whole, it's a whole production. You know, you, you set up the altar, all that sort of thing mm-hmm. back from a stage when a speaker just gave a talk. So I was very immersed in liturgical life and I was friends with a lot of people who really cared about the liturgy, but they weren't really trads per se. And then near the end of my time at Franciscan, one of them introduced me to the Latin mass as something that was only at Franciscan once or twice a month, one low mass, one high mass. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you, you actually discovered it in at, at Steubenville. I did. Yeah. And actually right now it's, um, it's growing a lot more traditional than it used to be. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask you. Um, uh, I, my understanding is they have a weekly mass there now and, and, and the community is growing, which is good. Yeah. I'm not, I don't have as much of a pulse on it anymore. I was an adjunct there a little bit last year, but, um, yeah, if they have a weekly, that's great. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I know a lot of the students go to St. Peter's in downtown mm-hmm. Steubenville, just five minutes away from the university, which has Latin Mass a couple times a week. So I want to ask you just about the the, the demographics, because, um, you know, you probably are aware of a lot of the statistics, although some of those statistics didn't jump out uh, in the book. But the 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 overall gross numbers are growing um, at a at a huge rate. COVID-1984 uh, and the scandemic really pushed a lot of what I call COVID refugees into the Latin mass. Yes. Uh, when, you know, when the, when the Novus Ordo establishment collapsed and abandoned uh, their people, every single diocese in this country and around the world, doesn't matter if you're a Strickland or a, uh, you know, or a Roach, you, uh, you abandoned your flock. And the only men who stood up and didn't abandon their flock were men in cassocks. Right. And so I think as a, uh, as a result of that in 2020, 2021, we have an influx, I would say. Now, it seems like you've been in the, uh, you've been in the Latin mass community longer than the influx. So you've noticed this trend as well. Do you know everyone at your parish uh, or has it doubled or tripled in the last two years? It's, um, it's definitely, I think it's definitely increased. I've certainly met people, you know, at, a conference and things like that who explicitly started i'm thinking of two specific older adults who started going to the latin mass because of covid because there was nowhere else to go i mean you think you kind of want to be charitable and say oh well you know there were some nova sort of parishes that were still open but really it's it's like night and day it really was just the the men in cassocks who kind of held the line and so people looking for somewhere to go to mass were left with just the latin mass so definitely seen an increase there what do you think that means, though, in terms of like the faith of the priests? What uh, is there? I mean, I'm not asking you to read anybody's heart per se, right, but right. how do you interpret the data, which is that the sniffles came along and the Novus Ordo Church ran away, but but the traditional church wasn't afraid? I mean, it's yeah, yeah. It, the, the, the experience from coast to coast has been the same, and I traveled quite a bit during the the pandemic. Uh, and that was what, that was my observation as well. What does that mean about like, is there a link between how you say the mass and what you believe? I, I think that's part of it. I think what I noticed, especially as a liturgist, so I was a liturgist for four churches that merged into one in Pittsburgh from uh, 2019 to 2020, really at the start of the pandemic as well. 
Um, I should just start calling it a pandemic. Anyway, um, so what I gathered really from talking to priests, especially, was that, especially with the kind of Novus Ordo mindset, there's a bureaucratic mindset, especially among, you know, bishops and priests, where it's hard not to see your role as almost purely administrative, especially if you think about the, the ethos of the Latin Mass versus the Novus Ordo. In the Latin Mass, it's the priests doing most of the sacrifice because that's that's what he's ordained for. He's standing in the person of Christ. Whereas in the Novus Ordo, a lot of his proper role has been outsourced, you know, as it were, to the laity. And I think that really bleeds into parish life. It bleeds into diocesan life to the point where you kind of start to see yourself a little bit as a bureaucracy. So when something like this comes along, something like COVID, and what do you do? The bishop looks at the governor or they look at the local politicians and they think, oh, that's how they're reacting to it. Well, I should just kind of toe the line and follow them. And the priests say, oh, you know, I'll just look at how everybody else is reacting and let's just be safe. You know, let's just do the the thing to cover our bases and make sure we don't get sued and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's really the impression I got, especially yeah. in task force meetings for yeah. COVID. That was really the focus. It wasn't, it's not that they didn't care at all about the liturgical life. It just wasn't thought, you know? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, and you had an insider's view being being within the establishment. I mean, you probably saw that, you know, risk management and the lawyers and the accountants were were making the decisions in these chanceries, and it was all based on avoidance of liability, uh, and the the idea of continuing the holy sacrifice, the only pleasing prayer that we can offer to God. Uh, that didn't that didn't enter anybody's mind. <laughs> so yeah. okay, so that caused an influx. Um, but before that, the, the, even before uh, the, the scamdemic, uh, people, the Latin mass was growing and you were part of that. And I was part of that, too. Right. Um, and so you you include in the book uh, some experiences from various people. I think a lot of people are are um, are familiar with Alexander I, Chugel. I, I always I always mispronounce his last name, but he's the Pachachucker. Um, and then, uh, you have some of your, it looks like you have uh, some college friends, uh, Stephanie Levinsky used to be big on social media. And I think, um, yep. it's good that she's not spending as much time online, but she's taking more time for her family. Yeah. She's a Canadian who, who has come to the mass recently. I would call her probably one of the COVID refugees. I mean, she's that, that new to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, uh, you have the, um, the Gordons. So, um, I guess let's go back to the question of have you been accused of false nostalgia by, because I have, uh, by Novus Ordo priests who say you have a fake longing for something that you never experienced. Have you ever, have you ever heard that phrase or been accused of that? Definitely heard it. I haven't directly been accused of it. No. Interesting. Um, what, it, what are the demographics of your Latin mass community look like? Is it, is it a lot of young families with, with young children or is it a lot of gray hairs? So I would say it's, it's all ages in Nashville where I am. Um, thinking, thinking about it the most, we have a lot, a lot of families with, you know, one to five kids. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of families with one to five kids. And then there's kind of a group of, you know, singles, if you will. There are a few newlyweds. And then there are a lot of, of older Catholics as well, especially in the kind of the boomer generation. Mm-hmm. Um, some of 
some of whom, you know, just kind of never signed on to the Nova Sordo stuff. Yeah. So really it is all ages. Yeah. There's a lot of those young families that are the core of it. Yeah. Um, you describe your personal experience of, you know, again, being a theology of the body charismatic and then, you know, I mean, you go through all, all of the basic blocking and tackling that's that, that others have done before, um, as well and covered, you know, the reverence and the silence and not Mm -hmm. on, you know, horizontal worship and, and, you know, the smells and the bells and all those things you refer to it as being trad pilled, um, you know, do you do you continue to see people being trad pilled by the aesthetics of it? Is that's what bringing people in initially, and then and then is there you know describe the process of becoming trad pilled? Does it start with beauty and and and, sure. and truth, or does yeah, it well, start with truth? Yeah. You know what what's the process? Yeah, I think it's kind of all at the same time. So uh, I see it twofold for people. One one is sort of like the rationality of it, um, especially the reverence that's really what draws people in. And then secondly, not secondarily, but really at the same time, it's, it's the beauty of it, that transcendental um, aspect. So truth, goodness, and beauty. So people coming in, especially I, I talk to a lot of people who are kind of, you know, tiptoeing around the Latin mass, you know, kind of getting their feet wet a little bit. And they are really attracted by the reverence. They say like, you know, this is the place where I can really get that aspect. I think a lot of people are attracted to the beauty as well. So I think it's twofold for me. Um, I know that when I started going, I think my first experience was a low mass and I just felt like I could pray more easily. I felt like it made more sense. You know, everybody was focused on what was going on. Mm-hmm. It was very clear that this was a sacrifice ordered to the worship of Jesus Christ. And it was very meditative. You know, I really felt that atmosphere at the foot of the cross and I felt at ease when I knew that, you know, I could just pray a rosary and focus on the sacrifice that's going on. And then I didn't have to necessarily perform all the time and do this call and response uh-huh. or demand uh-huh. in the sort out. And then I think as I started going, you know, I was really struck by that beauty, um, the bells and the incense, clearly something important is going on. And then after that, um, I got more of the reasons that jived with my theological studies that really show me, oh, okay, you know, there's much more to this. There's much more to these prayers. You know, it does make a lot of sense that we have a more limited lectionary. It does make sense that the priest doesn't really have options for the different prayers, that kind of thing. So for me, yeah. and I think for a lot of people, it happens that way. You're struck by the reverence and the beauty and the truth of it. You know there's something there. And then after the fact, you get those more logical reasons. That yeah, yeah. Now you you've done something that I think a lot of Novus Ordo uh, Catholics uh, are afraid to do. Uh, you went and inspected the the sanctuary for for fragments of our Lord. The oh, that was that was gets trampled on, or that, that was one of your contributors anyway in the book. Uh, that who, who was that again? But Kenneth um, Alexander. Okay. okay, so in the book, ever ancient, ever new. Well, one of your contributors had the courage to say, you know what, I'm going to click on this link from this trad article and where they talk about how, you know, our Lord gets trampled on and you, and I'm going to personally verify this. I'm going to march into my Nova Soto parish and I'm going to inspect the sanctuary and I'm going to look for fragments of our Lord. And sure enough, he found them. And and then when, as he's, you know, as reverently as possible, you know, trying to gather up the pieces of the Lord 
that are trampled underfoot by extraordinary ministers of holy communion and and others he 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 was chastised by an older member of the parish who said what are you doing no that's just a cracker you're being uh you're being overly rigid you know by trying to pick up our pieces of our lord um <laughs> yeah it's really sad it's really sad we had a um i wasn't directly involved but at franciscan a couple of um those who had been on the liturgy committee for longer told us of a time where just because some of the franciscan friars i don't think they really i don't think those in question do this anymore but they would say the eucharistic prayers with the missile right up at the front of the altar Uh and they were setting up for mass at one point getting the missile ready for the priest and they found fragments inside the binding you know between the pages of the missile wow Uh, i mean yeah i mean that's that's um that's that's scary um the solution to that particular problem that is that that is put forward by by lots of people though and 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 I would argue by by folks like you who come from places like Steubenville who have jobs like liturgists you know the solution is is the reform of the reform and and that has been put forward and tried in so many places for 30 years okay let's get back to the Vatican II Mass as it's supposed to be. We need to have, you know, the, the Reverend Novus Ordo, this unicorn thing that I still have yet to find consistently uh, available to anyone. Um, what what are your thoughts on this effort, the, this reform of the reform idea? Um, the or as I as I think about it, which you don't have to agree with, but I call it the you know the lipstick on a pig thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, my bottom line with it is I think you just need it all. I mean, it's pretty obvious that if you try something like the reform of the reform, there's still something missing. You need that whole traditional Catholic atmosphere. But I do think there are some places that approximate pretty well. You said you've never really seen that, you know, unicorn reverend Nova Sordo. I I think I have. Um, I think the Diocese of Nashville, Nashville is actually pretty unique in that regard. Um, there's a church, St. Mary's downtown, St. Mary of the Seven Sorrows, where... Um, it's basically as close as you can get without being Latin mass. They sing all the antiphons in Latin. Um, they do ad orientum. They have a Gregorian chant choir. So I think it's very rare. Um, I think it is there, but still, I mean, even with something like that, you can tell pretty obviously what you're doing is you are taking the elements from the Latin mass. You're bringing them into the Novus Ordo. You're trying to approximate it, even if you don't realize it. And so mm-hmm. what what needs to be done is that full jump because really everything in the Latin mass is there for a purpose Um, because it's been slowly developed over centuries and centuries from the time of St. Peter on, you know, and that's that's what you, that's what you covered. It it was a big, it was a big event for you when you started reading about Bunini. Yeah. And, and how, and how the new mass was just slammed together very quickly. Um, There's no recourse to tradition. It doesn't, it doesn't speak to our patrimony uh, whatsoever. Right. Yeah. That was really shocking to me because I, um, I always, I I try to be as shared as possible. I always like to think that, you know, everybody has the best of intentions, but when I read some of this stuff and you see like, no, actually, you know, these people really did want to approximate a Protestant service in some respects. Um, and then they sort of, you know, pick from different aspects, which, you know, I, I respect as far as, you know, you want to go back to the sources, you want to go back to the early church. 
But of course, there's a reason why these things develop slowly over time under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Why we don't pick a, a time frame in the church and crystallize it. Actually, that's kind of a criticism leveled against traditional Catholics at times, that we're sort of crystallizing tradition and we have a nostalgia for a particular age. When in reality, what's happened is that the Holy Spirit has worked slowly and surely through the life of the church. And we've picked these venerable traditions from, you know, different things from different cultures get added to the mass, but it's not by a committee, you know, and it's yeah. not hodgepodge manning. It's slowly Some, and carefully. Now, I, and I don't know where you fall on the spectrum of traditionalists. Um, I think it's pretty obvious where I do, but you know, some people have just have described exactly what you're saying, the organic development of the of the Trinitine Mass over time as being guided by the Holy Ghost. And that the that the new mass is not the hermeneutic of continuity, but it's a hermeneutic of rupture. It's in a brand new invention that's in it's an inorganic uh, creation by committee. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't you know what what do you what do you think about a the hermeneutic of continuity, so-called, uh, in the age of post-traditionis custodis? Uh, and then B, you know, sort of wherever you fall on this issue, if what would you say to a to a hermeneutic of rupture person about, you know, how would you even describe what the Novus Ordo is? What does it represent? Yeah, that's difficult for me. It's difficult for me to find the language. Um, I think I have some clear principles, though. So I I would sympathize a little bit with both camps in this respect. So I, I very intentionally use the word creation when I talk about the Novus Ordo, creation of the Novus Ordo, because it really was a committee of people that came together and created this liturgy. Um, and so I don't I don't necessarily think it's um, it's a rupture with tradition in the sense of you know, so radical that, you know, we don't have Jesus present in the Eucharist. There aren't really people saying that anyway. Um, unless, you know, maybe some fringe groups have said it for contests. Um, right. I would say, yeah, it's, it's clearly a break from how the Holy Spirit has worked in the church. And it's not, it's not the way that liturgy is supposed to be done. So I would, you know, I would even go so far in, in some circles like this one where people really understand me well. I, I would say it's illegitimate. You know, it's not a legitimate form of liturgy, and it shouldn't be supported. Now, that doesn't mean you can't go to a Novus Ordo Mass. That doesn't mean it's not the Mass. Um, but it was it was created in a way that doesn't respect the way that the Holy Spirit works in the Church. There are many elements of it that are just inferior as a form of worship, and I can go into that a little bit if you want. Yeah, but well, it does really bring Jesus Christ to us, and in the core of it. You know, it, it does what it needs to do. So that's why I'm kind of sympathetic to both sides. Yeah, and, and I get that. And and here's, uh, let, let's do a thought experiment. And, and again, you know, no show notes, just want to have a conversation with you. Uh, I, I enjoyed reading the book, although I did skip Tim Gordon's chapter because I don't care what he has to say. But, um, but notwithstanding that, so I, I, I look at it and I say, the validity question, I think you're right. I don't know too many trads even like the most hardcore uh, that I may enjoy a cigar with every now and then. I don't know too many of them who are going to say that the Novus Ordo is invalid, right? right. Because you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it's, it's valid. In fact, Father Ripperger's, you know, it famously says the biggest problem with the Novus Ordo mass is that it is valid, um, which is a, which is tongue in cheek way of, of criticizing the thing. Now, um, so let's start from the fact that it, that it is valid and, but what, what I what I hear so often, 
David, is you know people who say, well, it's val- it's our Lord on the altar. But you know, if our Lord is stolen from a, a mass and taken to a black mass, he's still on the altar there too. It's a validly consecrated host. The question is, are we are we treating our Lord in the manner that is befitting of his dignity? Are we rendering to him pleasing sacrifice, um, you know, to God? Now, obviously, in the black mass scenario, we're not. But I, and and I'm not saying that the Novus Ordo is a black mass. I'm not saying that there's anything satanic about it. Uh, it is interesting that Bugnini was probably a Freemason of of some kind, of some variant of some stripe. Um, there there seems to be evidence of that, but. Uh, but the 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 question of validity of is the sacrament confected? Of course, the, the sacrament is confected. That's not the really important question, though, right? Uh, in, in my mind, it's you know whether or not th- th- this is pleasing to God. And and the, right. the 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 folks and and I'll throw this back over to you. The folks that I hear that defend the Novus Ordo who say this it's 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 valid. It's our Lord on the altar. Yeah, I get that. But you're still attacking the the argument from the point of view of me, right? Of it's all about me. It's all about the congregation. It's all about how I feel and what's happening right. to me. The purpose of mass is for me to receive communion. Actually, no. In the in the traditional Latin mass, distribution of holy communion to the people is an interruption of the liturgy. It is a break of the liturgy. Uh, so um, so I I think you know that that inherent um, self centeredness which is promoted by the new mass is still the point of view from which many novus ordo uh catholics defend the latin mass what do you think about that um that whole (laughs) screed that i just gave you yeah i think that's right um i don't i i don't know how many how many novus ordo catholics consciously think that the focus is on them but i really think that's true so some of the things I'm I'm the type of person who's not going to say something unless he's absolutely sure. But even then, I can still say that I think that the Novus Ordo is an unfocused form of worship. It's it's haphazard, and so what ends up happening is you lose some of that efficacy of the worship. You know, you lose some of that fittingness. It's less pleasing to God. It really is. And I'll I'll just bring up two examples really quick because I know those are these are kind of you know big claims. So. One of which, and these are inherent to the Novus Ordo, you know, one of which is the lectionary. So how do you lose the focus there? Well, you lose focus there because you're expanding the lectionary in itself, not necessarily a bad thing. You know, you've got more readings, but if you look at the structure of the Novus Ordo, you've got a, I think it's a three-year cycle for the Sundays and two-year for weekdays. I would be mixing them up. Often what happens is you're going through a book of the Bible, a book of the Old Testament on the weekdays, and it really doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. You know, they're not chosen for any sort of unity. They're not chosen for any sort of language of sacrifice or worship, which is often the case in the Latin Mass. They're not always chosen to give honor to a particular saint or extol certain virtues, but it's just kind of a scripture study. And it's great to have a scripture study. That's not the point of the Mass. And so that's one specific place where you lose the focus, where the message is communicated subtly, or more or less subtly. It's yeah. about us. It's about yeah. what we can get out of this thing. It's about we can learn from this mass. And it's the same thing with the mm-hmm. options of the priests. If you have options, some of them, no matter how you slice it, they're going to be a little better than others at approximating the point of the mass as the representation of the sacrifice of Calvary. And so you get to the point where with the priests, from his perspective, it's, well, 
you know, I have the ability to change these prayers at my discretion. So actually a, a little bit, it's about my preference as well. Mm-hmm. So you've mm-hmm. just lost the focus. You've lost the point of the liturgy. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting argument. I mean, one of the things that I you know when when I was attending the Nose Ordo in you know two thousand five, uh, one of the things I was very proud of repeating um, loudly, uh, my Protestant brothers, <laughs> so called, is that you know well if I attend daily mass uh, in the Catholic Church over a three year cycle, I've I've read the scriptures you know from cover to cover. Um, I think I think you know to your point about Protestantizing the uh, the Catholic liturgy. That was something very much that was in full view at, at the at the Council of you know w- you know we need to we need to read the Bible as much as our as our Protestant brothers read the Bible. And we do. Just not in that context necessarily. That's the That's thing. Right. And you think about it, that was actually the very last thing for me, that was the last hang up for me with the Latin mass was the lectionary. And it was reading um, Dr. Peter Krasnevsky's articles that really helped me on that to see the mm-hmm. point of the readings at mass. But if you think about it, you still don't get the whole Bible from that three year cycle. In fact, you miss very important passages. One of which is St. Paul talking about discerning the body and blood of the Lord <laughs> and having <laughs> that's ironic in the Eucharist. There are explicitly, some people like Bignini talk about how they took out some hard passages. Yeah. They were difficult for the faithful, but we need those. Yeah. Let's talk about current events because um, you've, you've, you've made the rounds, you know, of the trad podcasts. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the bottom of the list and I'm glad, I'm glad we're doing this conversation, but we have the benefit of breaking news today. The Fraternity of St. Peter has come out and said that they've had a meeting with Pope Francis and that they're so grateful to the Holy Father because Pope Francis seems to be affirming the fact that some parts of Traditionis Casodas do not apply to the Fraternity of St. Peter, although there is this sort of last paragraph there that they uh, that they highlight in which it says, you know, that actually Traditionis Casodas, to the extent possible, needs to be implemented with the Fraternity of St. Peter as well. I don't know what that means. Does that mean that they... Are going to have to start saying the uh, saying the readings in English from the altar. I don't know. I don't know what that means. It's 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 of course uh, am, ambiguous. Um, you attend, I, I think, uh, a, a diocesan parish. It, yes. it, this message from the frat implies to me that if it's true, anyway, if what they're saying is true, that the bigger threat. Uh, as perceived by Rome is, but is by the diocesan Latin masses that those are really the ones that they're wanting to target for total destruction. Uh, that seems to me what's going on here as well. I, I don't know. And it seems to fit mm-hmm. what, uh, what TC says and the, and the accompanying letter. What do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, his um, Pope Francis's intention in traducing his custodians, he says in his letter to the Bishop is for everyone to eventually go to the Novus Ordo. Um, you know, ostensibly for unity's sake. And then you you think about the, the answers to the dubia. And the intention there is clearly, okay, you know, we're just making a concession. We would like you over here, you know, in your traditional space. We would not like you to advertise in the parish bulletin. You know, we don't want people to really know about it, but if you need this, you know, you can have it for a little while longer. And so I think, I think it's consonant with the intention there. 
to say, you know, there are some exceptions for the FSSP and for the Institute because they're already those sort of ghettos. You know, it's this group over here. Oh, they're dedicated to the Latin mass. You know, they're just, they're just a small group. They're just kind of doing their thing. But if it's in a parish, as far as a, um, a diocesan parish, I should say, then it's out there, you know, it's more in public and it speaks to, well, really more of the truth that this is not just something that has fringe appeal for people who are just doing things based on their preferences. You know, there's really something true here and it's attractive to people who are just trying to follow Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's, that's a good take. And, and, and to be clear, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that either the fraternity or the Institute of Christ the King are, uh, are, are permanently safe. Uh, right no, from, no, from what's happening right now and there seems to be plenty of reporting from people that are in the know one of them is a rocker <laughs> Shelley, uh blog that that it seems to be pretty good um on the stuff coming out of rome uh that you know we, we will see in a couple weeks we're going to see on ash wednesday for example whether or not this ash wednesday massacre actually comes our way um why do you think it is um david DeShiel? Editor of Ever Ancient, Ever New. You can find it on 10 books. Type in RTF10 to get a discount. Why do you think it is that there is so much hostility from the Novus Ordo establishment for the traditional Latin Mass, and in particular in the context of a diocese? Yeah. I'm not, I mean, I'm not entirely sure. I think, I think a lot of it at this point is fear of the unknown. Um, because you're losing, um, you're losing a lot of people just by nature of how many years it's been. You're losing a lot of people who have grown up with the Latin mass. And so a lot of people just don't know it anymore. And it looks weird from the outside. They think, well, we have mass in our own language. Um, you know, you get more scripture, that sort of thing. Why would these people want to go to this old form of the mass? Like they must have some sort of, like you say, some sort of nostalgia for some period in the church's life, they need to get with the times, you know, they need to really engage with the culture. Of course, they don't realize that those who go to Latin mass often do very well with engaging with the culture. But I think it's, it's that unknown, first of all. Um, and secondly, it's, I mean, for some people, if you're asking about, I think you asked about kind of the diocesan level and that sort of thing, there might be a little bit of a loss of control there. I don't know how conscious it is with people. But, you know, when you have this form of the mass that's been around for so long that you can't really do much to change. I mean, it's just kind of baked into the rubrics on the mass. Um, there's there's a little bit of a concern there. Like, I, I don't have as much that I can control in this. You know, I don't feel as safe with this, especially when the communities are more or less put in a kind of a ghetto, a space over here. You think, oh, there's this fringe group over here. They could be kind of volatile. They could be kind of dangerous. That's just my speculation. Yeah, yeah. I look. It's 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 tough to speculate. It's tough to it's tough to understand why they would have such a disdain. But it, it is clear. Uh, I think uh, I think anyone who objectively looks at the facts and the of Tradiciones Custodas, the speed that it was supposed to be implemented, you know, these effective immediately type things, which are, which really breaks with how slow the church tends to be, um, that there, there is a disdain. There is a, there's absolute disdain 
for the for the growth in the traditional Latin Mass because it it represents something uh, in in the minds of those who are fighting it um, that they don't like, and um, maybe someday we'll know exactly what that is and what's what's driving it. Um, what what other closing thoughts do you have? Just about you know um, this book, by the way. Uh, I would say that this is a good book to give to anyone who attends the Novus Ordo. I think that yeah. I think why you compiled it. I assume uh, this is it's it's very readable. People like to read personal stories, um, you know, in in fifteen page chunks. Um, it's it's short. It's easy to get through. Is that your target audience? Is that who we should be sending this book to? Yes. So twofold. Um, one, I think primarily is those no sort of Catholics, especially those, you know, and there are a lot of them really that are seeking reverence and just don't really have another option that they've thought of. I have a number of friends who just kind of want the most reverent liturgy, but haven't really entertained the Latin mass yet. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people seeking that. I think for those people, especially that's who this book is for. And I would, I would read through it a little bit yourself. It's, it's a quick read. Um, because some chapters, some people who write here are going to speak to some more than others. Some are more intense, some are less intense. Some come from, um, Islam, Orthodoxy, etc. Some come from cradle Catholicism. So, you know, you can jump around and see what speaks to those people more or less. And then I think secondarily, it's for people like us who perhaps need to put some, some reasons to what we already know to be true so that we can do better in, uh, you know, really appreciating our faith, but also in communicating it to others. And because I think a lot of us, um, especially, I mean, I have the benefit of having a degree in theology. I'm grateful for that, but most of us don't. And mm-hmm. so most of us know kind of intuitively why we love the Latin mass, why we love traditional devotions, fasting, etc. but we might not be able to put it to words as easily. So I think that's the second audience. What's next for you? Are you going to keep publishing? Um, are you going to write your own book? Um, what, what can we expect from, uh, from David DeShiel here at, uh, now newly published under the, under the right. uh, Tan book family? I think I'll write from time to time. I'm hoping to have some time soon. My main gig is editing, copy editing, proofreading. So I work for a number of different Catholic publishers. Um, so I'll, I'll keep doing that as my day job. Won't see my name in books, but you know, I'll be, I'll have my hand in some of them. And then along the line, hopefully in the next few months, you know, if um, paternity leave gives me any opportunity, I'll have some more time to write. There you go. Congratulations. Yeah. What, what number is this? Number, is this number one? Number two. Number yeah. two. There it is. I love it. Congratulations on, uh, on that. Paternity leave is awesome. I always get the best books read during paternity leave. Right. It's, <laughs> it's good for me. I'm very grateful because I have a very um, generous boss being a freelancer. Yeah. <laughs> you are your own best boss. Yes. <laughs> well, thanks for spending, um, you know, spending 45 minutes with me. I think, I, I think that this is a worthwhile endeavor, what you've done. Um, you know, I would like to see you include, uh, maybe do a, a second edition of this where you, where you grab these same types of, you know, trad pill stories from other people as well. Um, and, and, and continue to, because again, I think people like to read the conversion stories or the reversion story, the Tradville stories of other people, of people that they know and, and have heard of, or maybe admire or whatever. Um, so I think this is a really great format, very readable. You can find it on tanbooks.com ever ancient, ever new by David DeShiel. Use RTF 10 as a discount code. 
I don't receive any of that money. I've never been paid by Tan. I, I plug their books all the time, but uh, but that's because I love them. I, lo- I like what they do. I think Tan is a good publisher. So thanks again for spending time with me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. This was great. Take care. Thank you.